the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue studying the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, and the plan is to finish chapter 6 this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, and the portion we'll be looking at can be found on page 1004 in the black Bibles around you. This may sound strange, but I want to wish you a happy new year. Happy new year? What are you talking about, Phil? It's still 2015. I don't know about you, but I think especially if you have school-aged children or you've been in the habit of going to school starting in the end of August and early September, it feels more like the new year now than it does on January 1st when we celebrate the new year. Again, I don't know if that's your experience, but I know that a lot of times in my home, we've had a lot of conversations toward the end of the summer, heading into the new school year, and it's like, now this is the year. This is the year when we do X, Y, Z, and we're going to get our lives in order in this particular way. And this is the year we start exercising every morning at 5 a.m. and reading our Bibles for two hours and praying before the kids get up. You know, those sort of resolutions. This is the new school year when we do that. I, again, I don't know if that's your experience, but every once in a while I've found over the last few years my wife and I have had those kind of conversations. Happy New Year, you know, this is the year that we start to do these things. And I figured in light of New Year's resolutions that are normally made but not made in, we don't have January 1st New Year's resolutions, but let's, let's look at three resolutions from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 and 20. Three foundational basic things that I think we should resolve as brothers and sisters, as Christians, that we would make a commitment to these things. So let's read this passage and consider three resolutions. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Resolution number one. Resolve that you will accept both warnings and comforts in God's word. Resolve that you will both accept warnings and comforts from God's word. I make this observation by the way the whole book of Hebrews is structured. As I've continued to read the book over and over again, I've noticed that every single time he gives a stern, harsh, sobering warning, like in chapter 2. Do not neglect this great salvation. 
pay much closer attention to this great salvation. If you neglect this great salvation, then there will most definitely be judgment for you if there was judgment for those in the Old Testament law. How much more? And then in chapter 2, after he warns them to not neglect this great salvation, the whole next portion of chapter 2 is strong encouragements, comforts, hope in Jesus Christ and how wonderful his salvation is that God subjected the whole world to us as human beings, but that we squandered that opportunity to be rulers and dominion over the whole earth. And we sinned and rebelled against God, but God in his kindness sent Jesus to restore humanity as our substitute. And chapter 2 explains this wonderful truth of this reversal of how God is going to turn sin and put it on its head on the cross and defeat sin, defeat death. And through Jesus Christ, humanity will then rule and reign over the world again. That's wonderful, encouraging news after being warned sternly and soberingly, don't neglect this salvation or you'll be judged. Or in chapters 3 and 4, we saw that God is warning us through his word that we should not neglect God's Sabbath rest. Strive to enter the rest. And if you don't, there will be a double-edged sword like the people in the wilderness wanderings who wandered around in their disobedience and failed to enter the promised land rest, and their disobedience led to their slaughter by the double-edged sword. He says, if you fail to enter this rest, there is a sharper double-edged sword that pierces the very heart and bone and marrow. It sees everything. Everything will be exposed, and you'll be falling under that judgment. So strive to enter his rest. What do you hear right after that stern warning? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and following. Friends, since we have Jesus Christ as our great, great high priest. Remember that? The great, great priest who has passed through the heavens. He is now seated at the right hand of God. And he has made intercession for us as our priest. We can now have forgiveness of sins, and there is a throne of grace, not of judgment. So approach the throne of grace in your time of need. Stern warning, comfort. Stern judgment, sweet promises of grace. So where do we find ourselves this morning in Hebrews? Well, last week we heard probably one of the most sober and terrifying warnings in all of Scripture. Friends, hold fast to Jesus because if you do throw away your faith, there is no returning back. It is impossible for those who have been once enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit to throw away their faith and return back to repentance. It is impossible. So what do we hear now in chapter 6, verses 9 and following? This sobering, stern warning that we looked at last week? Comfort. Encouragement. Look down at verse 9 again. This was from last week. Right after he talks about these cursed, worthless thorns and thistles. The word of God rains down on a soil and it produces not fruit but thorns and thistles. So it's cursed, it's burned. Friends, at this point, if you're hearing this message in Hebrews, you should be 
a little awakened, a little bit, is this me checking yourself? And he says in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. And right from there, that statement of inheriting the promises, he then gives us this exposition of verses 13 through 20 that I read to you. We have amazing promises to inherit from God, and these promises are sure, they're steadfast, and he wants to give them great encouragement. Look at verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have, who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. That's what he's hoping to do here. He just gave one of the sternest warnings in all of scripture, and what does he want to do right after that? Encouragement, strong encouragement. So friends, I want to encourage us as a church that when we read not just the book of Hebrews, but realize that the whole Bible fits both of these categories side to side next to each other. There is the terrifying law of God that says all of you in this room must be perfect as God is perfect. That's terrifying because all of us, if we admit and are honest, we are not perfect. We have fallen short of God's glory, his standard. We have not imaged and reflected the beauty and glory that God originally made us to have. And therefore, we are doomed under God's law. We should obey it perfectly. And you and I probably didn't obey it perfectly this morning. So what hope is there? And thanks be to God that he is not just a God of wrath a God of judgment and of terror, but he is a God of love and grace and comfort that after he bruises us with his law and brings us down to our knees and realize how helpless we are, how desperate we are for help and grace, he gives us comfort in his gospel, in words of promise, in words of hope. And from Old and New Testament, we see these two things, law and gospel, or you could say words of warning and words of comfort and grace. Throughout church history, some have said that these two distinctions are the way for you to understand the way the Bible fits together. And that some of you here this morning or throughout church history have erred by either emphasizing one at the exclusion of the other. So some traditions and some of you might be tempted to emphasize only God's law and obedience to his commands and how we must strive to obey God. But friends, if you only emphasize this in your life and in your thinking at the exclusion of God's grace, you'll fall in great error and not actually be able to obey his law like you're meant to do. On the other hand, there's those of us that might be, well, let's emphasize God's grace. It's more comforting and enjoyable to listen to. I don't like the terrors of the law. I want to run from them. And on top of that, we're a church that always talks about being a gospel-centered church. So let's emphasize and preach the gospel. And as much as that is true, we need to see these two categories working together all through the scriptures. As Charles Spurgeon said, there cannot be a greater difference in the world between the law 
and God's grace. And he who knows the difference has started to grasp the marrow of God's divinity. He's saying you get at the very heart of what God's trying to speak and say. Is that you this morning? Do you feel like you've grasped both God's terrifying law and his sweet, amazing grace? If you don't hold these two together, then you may not even be a Christian this morning. For in fact, this is one of the basics of Christianity. Not just to become a Christian, but then even to grow as a Christian. Non-Christians, if, if maybe you hear and you, you're like, I'm not sure I am a Christian or I know I'm not a Christian, then what you need more than anything is God's terrifying law. You need to be reminded of how holy and just and righteous the standard of God is. The problem so many people have in the world today is that they're not looking for a savior because they're not sick. At least in their minds, they don't think of themselves as sick. But what God's word has made plain to us is that we are in fact sick and need a savior. We need God's terrifying law to bring us low. And then at just that point, that moment when you realize that I need a savior, at that point, that is when, my friend, you need a gospel. You need a word from outside, not from inside to say, okay, you need to obey God's law. Well, let me look within and try and muster everything I can have and obey God's law. The solution the Bible gives is not to look within, but a gospel that is alien and a stranger from out that gets applied within. So I encourage you, whoever you are this morning, if you do not know what it means to be a Christian, have you heard the law of God? and all of its terror, and then been sweetly comforted with tears streaming down your eyes that there would be a God who would, by his grace, send his son Jesus to take every single requirement of the law, obey it perfectly, and take your place on a cross. This is the message of Christianity, that there is a law that we have failed and a gospel that we should celebrate in. But before we go on thinking about the celebration of the gospel as the center of our church for which I'm all in favor of, I think we should also, as gospel-centered teachers and thinkers and church members, hear that telling people to obey God's law now after being a Christian is not legalism. That's called obedience. And obedience is the mark of somebody who has been changed and transformed by this amazing gospel. And it is not inconsistent, as we've even seen in the book of Hebrews, to command and exhort and tell people not only to believe in Jesus, but to encourage one another, to stay faithful in a local church, to submit to leaders, and on and on we could go. As Kevin DeYoung has rightly pointed out in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, he says, my fear is that some of us gospel-centered churches are rightly celebrating and in some places rediscovering all that Christ has saved us from. But what we're doing is giving now little thought and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. There seems to be a gap between our love for his gospel and a love for godliness. And Kevin DeYoung says, this must change. It is not legalism to take holiness seriously. Would you find yourself in that category? I am taking my holiness seriously. 
Not because this makes me right before God, but because God has made me right through Jesus Christ. Is obedience what our church is known for, Embassy Church? Are we known as a church that loves to obey the words of Jesus? To embody, even if it makes us look weird and strange to our friends and family members around us. Creativity, relevance, and being a world changer might sound better than boring old obedience. But what gives Jesus Christ the glory that he deserves? What makes the manifold wisdom of God put on display for this community around us? It is a group of people who have been set apart by God's amazing grace and gospel. And that gospel doesn't just have the power to save, it has the power to sanctify and make you grow in Christ. One of my favorite books that I had to read in the internship I did back in Washington, D.C. was called The Bruised Reed. And in it, Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, and Puritans probably more so than anyone else in church history, just mastered this theme of law and grace and terrors of the law and comforts. Sibbs was called the doctor of sweet comfort. He said, it's dangerous, I confess, in some cases, and especially with some people, to press too much and too long on the bruising of the soul. This is his reference to the law of God being pressed. He says, because some may die under that wound and burden before they're ever raised back up again. Therefore, it is good that when we are in mixed assemblies to mingle both the comfort and the bruising in its due portion. But if we have this for a foundational truth, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, then there can be no danger in thoroughly pressing in on the law. For it will be much better for us to go bruised to heaven than be sound and go to hell. Therefore, let us keep ourselves under God's bruising till our sin be the sourest. And when it is the sourest, Christ will be the sweetest. Friend, if you could grasp just a little taste of what Richard Sibbs is saying, you will start to get how this works, not just to become a Christian, but how every day you can grow in your faith and your love for God, that as sin becomes the sourest, you then look to Jesus and are transformed with love for your Savior all over again. As we study the Bible, and Hebrews in particular, let's remember and resolve that warnings and comforts are not separated, but rather put hand in hand. Let's exhort one another in our church, and let's be people who do not neglect either of these truths. Second, resolution. First, let's resolve to be those who do not neglect warnings and comforts. Second, let's be those who resolve to see promises made and kept. Let's resolve to be those who see that the Old Testament is full of promises made and the New Testament is full of promises kept. In fact, the pastor I was just referring to when I was interning in Washington, D.C., when asked, summarize the whole Bible in one sentence. What a task. Summarize the whole Bible in one sentence. I was like, I wonder what he's going to say. That's the sentence he said. God has made some glorious promises, and through Jesus Christ, he has kept them. There's one short sentence 
about how to understand the Old Testament and the New and how Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the promises that God has made in the Old and now we are made new through Jesus. Let's read this passage again and notice the way promises were made and now promises are kept. In verse 13, it says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom he would swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, waiting, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I've just used the word promise here, but the word in the book of Hebrews is going to change the metaphor. It's going to say sometimes the Old Testament is full of shadows, and Jesus Christ is the real thing. Jesus is the final and fuller, greater type, and these were anti-types. And there's different ways to explain it, but the point we're trying to see is that all of human history and all of salvation history that began with Abraham and the promise that God made is finding its fulfillment in Jesus as the forerunner of our faith. So let's look quickly at Abraham. I want to I point out three different ways that you see this promise fulfillment or this shadow and the real thing. So first, Abraham. We see in verse 13 that God made a promise to Abraham. And this is referring to what we just had read to us from Eddie when he was up here. Eddie was reading from Hebrews chapter 11, which we'll hopefully get to in the coming weeks and months. And he was referring to the story of when Abraham had his first calling. Abraham was then called Abram. He was not a person who worshipped God. He was most likely worshipping other pagan gods, living in the land of Ur. And he was called by God to leave everything that was familiar, his friends, his family, his prosperity, his peace, his safety, and go somewhere where he has no idea where he's going. Hebrews 11.8 says, and he did not know where he was going when he was called. So why did he go? Why did Abraham leave all that was familiar and go and follow this I don't know where I'm going kind of call. This seems foolish. Husbands, if you're leading your spouse and your family and say, let's just get up and leave. Where are we going? I don't know. Let's sell the house. Let's quit the job. Let's just move. Let's go. You're going to be called a fool. But in fact, Abraham was not a fool because Abraham had a promise. So he is recorded here in Hebrews chapter 11 because of his faith in the promise that God had given. The promise was that Abraham would be the father of many nations. That through this one family, all the families of the earth, and therefore the whole world would find blessing. And that God was going to fulfill another promise that he made in Genesis chapter 3. See, there's this theme of promise, and then this fulfillment of promise, all the way starting back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin in the garden. They feel terribly ashamed of it. They're hiding from God. And when God finds them, he tells them that they will be cursed. 
then he also gives them a promise that through the family line of the seed of the woman, there would be one who would crush the serpent's head. That seed is followed all the way from Genesis 3 to Genesis chapter 12 to a man named Abraham. And that seed has been given a promise that God will, in fact, restore the earth as it once was in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Through this one family, Abraham, God would bless all of the world. It's an amazing promise. And Abraham believed with faith. Now, there's ups and downs in his journey, and it says here in our passage that he was patient, patiently waiting for this promise. And boy, was he patient. How are you going to be the man through whom all of the earth will be blessed, through the seed, through the family line, and your wife can't have children? She's barren. Never once been able to have a child. And then when the promise comes, to then when it actually is fulfilled in Abraham's life, takes decades. Patience. He patiently believed in this promise. 25 plus years As he got older and older and God confirmed and reminded him of the promise, what did they do but laugh? This is a joke. I'm looking at my wife and although she's beautiful in her old age, I'm seeing that she is well past her years of giving birth. Abraham and Sarah laughed at this word of promise. But they patiently believed In years of infertility and now old age, up to 190 years old they were, God gave them a son named Isaac, fulfilled his promise that there would be a line through his family that would then bless all of the families. But here in Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 14, we get a reminder of how God tested Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 which Chris read for us just a moment ago. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. That's a reminder of the promise. But that comes right at the time when God tells Abraham to kill his son and make him a sacrifice. Can you just imagine being put in those shoes? You have been waiting and waiting for God to fulfill his promise to give you a son. You haven't been able to have children ever. You do have a child. Thankfully, it's not a girl. No offense to the females, but in order for this thing to work out, he needed to have a boy, and it was a boy. Of all the odds, old men and women having a little boy named Isaac. And God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. As he walks up the hill, the mount that he climbs with his son Isaac. You saw in the text that was read, the son's like, uh, dad? There's uh, no animals to be sacrificed. I see the wood. I see that we're going to make a sacrifice. And I see the knife. But uh, where's the rams or the lambs or somebody or something other than me? And he says, God will provide. Abraham had faith again says in Hebrews chapter 11 that he believed that if anything, God could just resurrect Isaac from the dead if he had to. But he went through and got to the point where he, he raised that knife above Isaac ready to slaughter him and an angel came out and said, no, no, no. 
you have passed the test and provided a ram. We see in this passage of scripture that's being referred to here, when this promise is being reminded of, a wonderful picture of this promise and fulfillment. You see here is a a beautiful picture of how many years later, as some scholars have argued on the same exact group of mountains, there was another firstborn. And this firstborn was stretched out also on wood to die. But at this point of his life, no voice from heaven came and cried out, there is another one who will provide. Instead, it was Jesus Christ who had to bear the weight of God's wrath and our sin. God saw Abraham's obedience in Genesis 22 and said, Now I know that you love me because you gave your son, your only son, the one whom you love. Friends, do you realize that you now know that God loves you because he gave his son, his only son, whom he loved? Is there anyone in all of creation that God loves more than his son, Jesus Christ? Is there anyone he takes more pleasure in? When God opens up the heavens in the gospel accounts and says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Do you know the love of God in the picture of the gospel here in this story? When we see Abraham sacrificing his son, and at the last moment, the knife being pulled away. Jesus Christ hung on a cross, and the knife was not pulled away. And now you and I know that he gave us his only son, so that you and I can now be heirs of this promise. When God made a promise to Abraham, he said that it would be obtained by the heirs Because of Jesus Christ's fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise through his death and sacrifice as the firstborn over all creation, Jesus now makes you and I heirs if we have faith in Christ. So as we read this passage of scripture, we should see that there's a a beautiful picture of how we now are included into this wonderful story and how God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The second place we see this picture of promise and fulfillment or type and shadow being fulfilled in Jesus is in this image of refuge. You see this in verse 18, that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. The wording here of refuge is probably calling back to the idea that there were cities of refuge when Israel was established as a nation. That if somebody were to commit a crime and that the wrath of men and women were to be on them, that they were going to be chasing after them and saying, I want your head, you you hurt someone or you killed somebody. And if they committed some sort of crime, they were to flee to a city of refuge before the trial would be done. And so here we see a picture of how those who fled for refuge to flee from the wrath of humans is just a, a faint shadow for us. We aren't fleeing from human wrath. We're fleeing from God's wrath. And we should have great comfort and encouragement to know that God has provided refuge in Jesus Christ by taking on that sacrifice and atoning for our sins. There's no wrath that remains. And we can find refuge not just in a city, but in the whole world. 
One day this whole world will become a whole city of refuge where it will be completely free from man's wrath against one another and God's wrath against us through Jesus Christ. The third and final picture we see is this anchor in the inner place behind the curtain. This is without a doubt a picture of God going through the inner courts of the Holy of Holies. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the idea of the Day of Atonement and the way that the priest walks in from the outer court to the inner court and into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's special presence was. A place where if you were impure or unclean, you would die in an instant. What we saw in Hebrews chapter 4 and 5 was that Jesus is our priest that came in the inner court of the Holy of Holies. He tore the curtain in two and now makes access and this access is now being defined and described as an anchor, an anchor to our soul. Jesus, our forerunner, went ahead of us. For if we would have had the opportunity to go in on ourselves, we would have been perished and incinerated in God's holy presence as being sinful, unholy people. So what does all this mean for you and me as we understand the Old and New Testament and the way that promises made and promises kept and shadows and types being fulfilled in Jesus. It means that when we read your Old Testament, you need to understand that the Old Testament has been fulfilled in a way that it was useful, it was purposeful, we can learn from it, but those things have been done away with. As one author has said, it's like travelers sailing across a vast ocean and finally arriving on a distant shore. They leave their ship behind and continue their journey over land, not because the ship was no good or because their voyage had been misguided, but precisely because both the ship and the voyage had accomplished their purpose. During the new dry land stage of our journey, the travelers remain, and in this illustration, they must not forget that they were people who traveled on that ship for their voyage. Friends, that's the best way, I think, for us to understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament was that ship traveling through a voyage of here is the direction God is headed. And when it arrives on land in the person of Jesus Christ, the ship is done away with. The symbols and types and promises are all fulfilled. So the ship was good. It didn't lead us astray. It helped us understand what God is doing in this world. But now we don't need the ship anymore. We don't need animal sacrifices. We don't need the temple. We don't need all of the things like the city of refuge and the Old Testament law all of these have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we should find hope and encouragement as we see this unfolding drama that the ship has arrived. Promises that have been made have been fulfilled. And therefore, we are now a part of this ongoing story. God's plan is unfolding, and you and I can be a part of it. That should give you hope, encouragement, great encouragement. That there's nothing that can make God's plans be stopped. And this is exactly the main point of this passage. And let's look at our third and final resolution. Resolve that this year you will hope in God. Resolve that you will hope in God. Hope in his promises. Hope in his unchanging character. We see in verse 13 that when God made this promise to Abraham on that mountain... When he was sacrificing Isaac and then eventually the ram, it said he had no one greater by whom to swear, so he swore by himself. I think this is one of the coolest passages in all the Bible. He had no one greater to swear by. It's as if God looked around and said, look, 
I want to help Abraham and the people of Israel and the inheritance of this promise to realize that this promise is sure. It's real. It's going to come through. And I'm God, and I don't lie, so my word and promise should be sure enough. But these people are so weak and so fickle and don't get it. So I want to double up my word in some way or manner. And he looks around, and he's like, well, I can't swear on the angels because I'm greater than the angels. And I can't swear on heaven and earth because I made heaven and earth. And he can't swear on his mother's grave because he wasn't ever a child. He's never been created. And this is what we do. This is exactly what he says here, that when human people, verse 16, they swear by something greater than themselves. And when that happens, an oath is made, and then that settles the deal. This is kind of common knowledge, especially in this day as the text is being written. So what we see God doing is saying, okay, I need to, well, there's nobody greater than me. I'm supreme. I'm superior. I'm the uncreated one. I'm holy and unique compared to anything and everything else. So I'll swear by myself. It's just a fascinating way for the scriptures to teach us that God is in a place by himself. He's holy, holy, holy. He's worthy of all glory and praise. And so he gives us a double promise by giving us a word of promise, which we can't lie. So that should have been good enough. But then a second oath, promise plus oath, double assurance that this promise will come to fruition. And Abraham, even though he had to wait for quite a long time, he saw the beginning fruits of the promise starting to be fulfilled. He had a son named Isaac. And Isaac, he had two boys, Jacob and Esau. And through Jacob, 12 sons. 12 sons would become the tribes of Israel. And through this tribe, a nation would be born. And then they multiplied into a great nation. Through this nation, then they'd have a great king named David. And through the king line of David, you start following all the Old Testament, you see right in the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew's gospel opens up with genealogy lists and telling that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus is the son of God, the fulfiller of the promise. God's promise to Abraham has come true in Jesus Christ. So when you look at Jesus and you see the promise that God made to Abraham, you should see God tells the truth. I should trust him. I should believe in his promise and how it can be a solid anchor for my own soul. We should have strong encouragement because of the hope that has been held out for us in Jesus Christ as a fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham and now applied to us as we believe in Jesus. When you think of this image, anchor of the soul. Sometimes people think of it as like, okay, there's the anchor and it's thrown into the inner place of heaven, of the holy of holies. And there this rope or chain dangles from heaven and we got to grab onto it and hold onto it. This is not at all the picture we see here in Hebrews. The picture we see is one that is sure and steadfast. In the same way that the anchor is held firm attached to the side of the boat and firmly down into the bottom of the ocean, so for you and for me, we have an anchor firmly held into the inner place of God's holy of holies. And that then is attached to our souls, firmly 
securely. God keeps, holds, and secures all of those who are in Jesus Christ. This is, again, what we saw last week. Don't think it dangles, and it's all up to your strength and your grasping, and that if you don't hold on, that it will be let go from your ability to be with God in heaven. So, friend, do you have hope this morning? Do you have hope that Jesus Christ has gone through the heavens into the inner sanctuary of the Holy Holies? He's torn the curtain in two, and he has provided access now into heaven through his blood, through his sacrifice as the once-for-all sacrifice, and that you hold fast to him because he's holding fast to you? Fix your eyes on this hope. Be grounded in God's unchanging promises. This is how we persevere. He says in verse 11 and 12 that he wants you to be earnestly finding the full assurance of your hope until the end. He wants you to have faith and patience like Abraham had patience. In your trials and struggles in your life, have you even waited 25 days before you complain to God? Let alone 25 years before you started to see glimmers of God's promises unfolding. Think through the struggles of a barren couple and the storms and the trials of wondering, is this God going to come through on this promise? And the answer is yes. This promise is sure, it's steadfast, it's an anchor for our soul. I love the way that the hymn says, When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. You have an anchor within the veil. In every high and stormy gale of our life, there is hope. Do you know this hope this morning? I don't know what storms of the life, uh, in your life that you will have or are going through. But can I just be transparent for a moment? The last three weeks have been a bit of a rocky storm for me. I've had to sit through and watch my son turn blue because he couldn't breathe in a NICU. He's struggling in different moments, and there's times where you're just looking at that and you feel so utterly helpless. There's nothing you can really do. He just has to come to on his own, and you're wondering, like, God, are you, are you going to take my firstborn? And I'm, I'm thinking about these passages and these truths that God asks Abraham your only firstborn, the son you love, sacrifice. And he passed the test. I'm sitting in hospital day after day, and I'm thinking through, God decided to sacrifice his son, Jesus Christ. I just have a hard time thinking there's any way I would trust to say, yeah, God, take my son, my firstborn son, There's an anchor for my soul in the dark days of knowing whether or not my son's going to do well. And praise be to God, I think he's doing quite well. But still doesn't make the boat rocky. Should I live on the unchanging circumstances of living in the NICU in the hospital? Well, I could, but I'd be a frantic mess. Friends, that's what so often many of us do. The unchanging circumstances of our life We get tossed to and fro by every wind and wave that gets thrown at us. And what the scriptures want to say to you this morning is that there's an anchor, an unchanging character and promise from God Almighty. And this promise is sure. 
That even if he does take our little ones from us, even if there is evil in this world, this God will turn all evil on its head and make all of it new in the new heavens and the new earth. Put your hope in the new heavens and new earth. That Jesus has become our forerunner. He went ahead of us. He blazed a trail. And that trail was to take sin and suffering and pain and even death itself and say, I will be the one who takes and bears this burden so that when you follow behind me, you can have hope that I will rescue you from it. Are you following Jesus' trail and the journey that he has set us on through the darkness and the wind and the waves? The economy or finances in the news this week are saying that maybe they're in trouble. Maybe it's your marriage or your family troubles. Maybe you have health problems. Maybe it's just the sin in your own heart that keeps messing your life up again and again. This life is full of many troubles. But praise be to God that Jesus himself says, I have overcome the world and all your troubles. Let's put our hope in Jesus this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning for your word. We want to thank you that your word is true and trustworthy. That we have seen throughout history, your word continues to be fulfilled and come true for us. We thank you that your word has never once been proven false. Centuries and millennia of scrutiny have never once proven that the Bible should be thrown out, that God's word is void. Instead, we see again and again you accomplish your purposes through the person of Jesus, through the rise and growth of your church. God, we are in the midst of this, and we thank you that you have called us to be inheritors of a promise that you made all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to Adam and Eve. And thank you that that promise has come true in Jesus Christ and that through his resurrection we know it will come true in the end. Thank you, God, for hope this morning. Thank you for an anchor within the veil and help us trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.